high right out of the gate, is there? <laughs> Last year I bought her a really cool set of spatulas. <laughs> okay, some of that's true. You, you decide which one's true. The Christmas season is upon us, is it not? And I'm assuming that after Black Friday and Cyber Monday that you have all of your shopping finished, correct? Everyone done? I did see some hands. There were some hands of first service too. I assume you have all of your decorations up. Your tree is up, the lights are on, uh, the house is decorated, there are snowmen everywhere in our house. Snowmen kind of go with Christmas uh, in our house. Uh, But I know that this time of year is incredibly hectic uh, for most people. And just when you think that you are finished preparing, you remember one more gift to buy. That uncle or cousin or uh, teacher or pastor (laughs) that you forgot to add to your list. I saw on Facebook this week where someone's little one was playing an angel and another one, a shepherd in their church's Christmas program. I remember the one year that my sister and brother-in-law, they played Mary and Joseph, and my then four-month-old nephew was baby Jesus. Uh, They went all out and used a real live baby that year. It worked uh, well for them. He's now 25 and expecting his first, so that was quite a while ago that that took place. But for all of the oohs and the ahs those Christmas pageants and programs bring, That the audience sits back and watches and and as smooth as it may appear happening on stage. How many of you have ever worked backstage at one of those Christmas productions? Anybody? Okay, there's a few of you. Backstage is a war room. You've got props everywhere that people are tripping over. You've got scenery that just got pulled off and other scenery that needs to be put on. You have costumes that need to be changed and you have all kinds of things going on backstage that the audience never sees, ideally never sees or hears. You have, uh, you have to make sure that everyone hits their cues, that, that none of the sheep wander off and that none of the wise men break anything. Okay, we, you usually put someone in charge of the wise men because when you get those three boys together, great things can happen. And yet on stage, they always portray the Christmas story perfectly. They are angels. And everything comes off just as, as we had hoped. And I think most of us probably get the gist of the Christmas story. We have Mary, a young virgin, maybe in her early teens, pledged to be married. Mary is visited by the angel of God who greeted her with the glorious news that she had been chosen to give birth to Jesus, son of the Most High. And we have Joseph, a carpenter. Both of them lived in the Galilean town of Nazareth. Joseph, not understanding all that was going on, was also visited by an angel in a dream who explained to him what God had done and the specialness of this baby. And so he took Mary to be his wife. And in response to a decree issued by Augustus, Caesar of Rome, the couple traveled to Bethlehem, a city just outside of Jerusalem at about the time Mary was ready to give birth. The journey was not an easy one. Many miles of dangerous roads probably took six or seven days to make the journey, and every night would have been hard to find a safe 
and semi-comfortable place for Mary to rest. Upon arriving in Bethlehem, the city was packed with travelers. Nobody had any room in their, in their homes to take them in, and even the local inn was full. And the innkeeper offered him all that he had, the stable, to at least get out of the cold. And it was in the stable that Mary gave birth to Jesus and wrapped him in those swaddling clothes and placed him in the feeding trough or manger. Outside of town, the shepherds were keeping watch over their sheep. And an angel appeared to them and announced, Good news, a Savior is born in Bethlehem. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. At some point after his birth, wise men from the east, magi, came and visited and brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Really kind of odd baby shower gifts if you think about it. But Mary and Joseph would no doubt need them in their upcoming flight to Egypt. The wise men, we can read in Matthew, never actually came to the stable. It tells us that they visited the child in a house. And yet, we every Christmas bring out all of the little figurines. And we reconstruct that night on our mantles and, and some, pro- or some prominent place in our house. And, and we set up the nativity scene to, to represent that first Christmas story. So we have our Christmas story told every year, acted out by children and adults, TV specials and movies. We know this story. But my question today is not so much to focus on the story, but what was happening backstage while all of this was happening in front of us? What was it like in heaven leading up to that first Christmas? Now, we can't know for sure because Scripture doesn't talk about it, But we can imagine God directing all of the events, the timing of it all so that nobody missed their cue, getting Mary and Joseph in the right place at the right time with the donkey and and the, the safety and the angels all in white and the crowds and the innkeeper and the shepherds and then the heavenly host and the wise men all on cue. All of this carrying out the plan of God. All of this carrying out the plan formed from the beginning of time when God told that serpent in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God began orchestrating his plan for Christmas. To make sure every, all the cues, everybody hit their cues, everybody had their right lines, everyone was, was in the right place at the right time. And what was going through Jesus' mind as that time approached? The closest that we have to understanding Jesus' mind is what Paul wrote to us in the, in the, the uh, book of Philippians when he wrote to the church of Philippi. So take your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians near the end of the New Testament. It might be easier to start in the back and go forward. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2. We get an idea of what Jesus was thinking, of what was going through his mind backstage just prior to him coming on the scene. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin reading with verse 1, simply because it's easiest. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider yourselves, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you ever think about what Jesus went through backstage? Just prior to having the Christmas story begin to unfold. It it says here that he was being in the very nature of God. That actually means that he was, by all appearances, God. That the word is morphed. Okay, and, and that's important to understand because Jesus was morphed God. He was in the form of God. He was the very appearance. He was everything that God was, he was. Colossians chapter 2 says that for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That means everything that is God, every truth that we understand God to be is true of Jesus. The glory of heaven the glory of his presence, the majesty, the power, the authority, the perfection. Everything that we attribute to God the Father was true of God the Son, was true of Jesus. He is equal to the Father. In quantity and quality, everything about him, every way, they were the same. That that being in very nature God, being morphed, being in the form of God, But on the night the angel appeared to Mary, everything changed. Being in the very nature God, he made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant. It's the same word that's used, the very nature of God and the very nature of a servant is that word morphed, that he was by all appearances at that point a human being. By by all appearances, he was a man. Everything that is man except sin, we are told. He was sinless. He did not have the sin nature upon him. But everything that was man was Jesus at that point. That, That while he was in heaven at one point, all the glory and the majesty and the power and the authority and the angels around him, at some point in time, in a split second, he became nothing, made himself nothing, and took the very nature of a servant. That was all backstage, prior to the angel telling Mary. That he he emptied himself by stepping away from the glory, away from the majesty. That that when he felt that the, the very nature of God was not something that he could grasp, something that he could seize, he seized hold of the very nature of a servant. Letting go of the divine and taking a hold of humanity made himself nothing, emptied himself, stepped away from the glory, the majesty, grasping, seizing, putting on the human likeness. 
He was morphed. He was, in, in, by all appearances, a human being and, and with all the weaknesses and limitations that the body brings. The aches and the pains. Jesus had never felt ache and pain before. But he knew now, setting all of that aside and taking on the very likeness of a man, that there were going to be mornings when he got up and after sleeping on the ground, his back wasn't going to be quite right. I get that off of a really nice mattress. That, that there was going to be aches and pains, that there was going to be weariness, that he was going to feel tired. Jesus had never felt tired before. In, in all of his power and authority and in the very nature of God, he was never weary. But he set all of that aside to take on the very nature of a servant, to be made in the very likeness of man, with all of the aches and pains, with the tiredness, with the hunger. He had never been hungry before. He had never been thirsty before. But he was willing to set all of that perfection aside to take on human form, morphed into a servant. That word servant, I did a lot of word studies this week in preparation for this and just tearing apart these verses. And what do these words mean? That idea of being in the very nature, uh, being, taking the very nature of a servant, I mean, he was morphed into, by all appearance, devoted to another, disregarding one's own interest. Devoted to another. You know who that another is? You and me. That he said that this divine quality, this, this glory, this majesty, this power and authority was not something that he needed to hold on to, but he needed to set it aside, take on the humanness, and devote himself to you and I. He didn't need to do it. He didn't need to set it all aside. But he knew there was no other way. He knew that the best way was for him to set aside the glory and to take on the, the nothingness the humility, the appearance of a man, the very nature morphed into a servant to where it's disregarding his own interest. Jesus said in the garden at Easter time, not my will, but yours be done. He said to the Father, you know, I've set aside he was a servant of God at that point. That he set aside the equality of God and he became a servant. And he said, no longer my will, but yours be done. He humbled himself. He voluntarily took on a lower rank. He was the commander-in-chief, and he now volunteered to be a private. That doesn't happen very often. That someone of high rank would voluntarily step down and give up all of that. To go back to a lower position. A lower position of glory, a lower position of authority, a lower position of power. Jesus set it all aside. Now, with all of that, let's go backstage again. The angel appears to Mary, and Jesus is preparing to leave. Remember what's happening on the stage, on earth, that Mary is being visited by an angel, and the angel is explaining to her that you have been chosen that you will be found with child, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And you will be with, with child, and, and you will give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus, and he will save the world. 
That he will be the son of the Most High. And at that moment, Jesus is standing on the wings waiting to go. He's getting ready to say goodbye to the Father. Because he's about to leave the glory of heaven and subject himself to becoming an embryo. See, we usually don't go back that far. We have him with the baby in the manger. Because it's tough to produce an embryo in the womb, visually. But that's where he started. His first step was from glory, majesty, authority, and power to embryonic stage in the womb. Dependent upon the body of Mary for nurturing and growth from all powerful to all needy. That Jesus had been a part of the miracle of conception and birth millions of times before. He had created, he knew what he was getting into. He knew what was going to happen. He understood the helplessness of an infant. He understood that he was going to become dependent upon Mary. Now think about this. Mary, the one whom he had created 14 or 15 years earlier. You see, Jesus backstage created. He took Mary and placed, placed that conception, placed Mary, that, that person in the womb of her mother. And watched the development in the womb and the birth and the growing up. And then 14 or 15 years later, he stepped out of glory and stepped into his mother's womb. He set it all aside for that. To go through that process. God the Son subjected himself to becoming an embryo. Implanted in the womb of a young teenager. Where he would go through the various stages of pregnancy. And be born in the most humble of circumstances. His relationship with God the Father was now going to be different. His relationship with the angels was going to be different. God the Son was becoming a, becoming a human being. And subjecting himself to even death on a cross. For 34 years, there was an empty throne in heaven. You know, we forget that sometimes. That, that the, the Son of God, God the Son, the, the, the Son, the part of the Trinity, seated upon his throne at the right hand of the Father, left his throne, set it all aside. Said it's not something that I need to be grasping, I need to seize, I need to, to retain. And he took on the very form of a human being. In fact, started with an embryo, grew within the womb, was born as an infant under incredibly hard circumstances, raised in a poor family. To become a man, to become obedient, to become a servant, in order that he might die, even death on a cross, which was a horrible way to go. Jesus was willing to set all of that aside to lift you up. That's the story of Christmas. Jesus was willing to set all of that aside, all of the glory, majesty, power, authority, in order to become a man, in order that he might one day lift you up. So what is our response to the Christmas story? Paul continues in his letter in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering and on the, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, therefore... He says, because of all of this, because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid it all aside and he took on the very nature of a servant, the very likeness of man, because of all of that, therefore continue to work out your salvation. Because Jesus was willing to set it all aside in order that he might be able to lift you up, continue to live the lift up life. Continue to live a life that is is to be lifted up. Continue to work out your salvation. That word work out means to fashion something, to make something, to create something, to render something as fit for something else. So he's saying to work out your salvation, to take your life and work it out, live it out, fashion it so that it is fit for what Jesus has done for you. So that your life resembles all that Jesus did, the setting aside and the taking up. Live your life as one who is saved. Your salvation, your present state of being forgiven. Fashion your life as one forgiven. Live your life, make your life something that resembles someone who's been forgiven. Someone who has had their sins wiped clean. Someone who has, who has had the God of the universe set it all aside in order to pick them up. Live like a picked up one. Continue to work it out. Continue to fashion it. Basically, live your life as one saved. Live your life like you've been set free from sin. Live your life like, you've been, like, like sin has no power over you. Live like a child of the king. Jesus was willing to set his divine nature aside to lift us up. What are you willing to set aside to lift him up? He set it all aside. Everything. What are we willing to set aside? Paul says to fashion your life with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear is the same word, and I've always understood this, that it's not fear as in scared like a horror movie or someone jumped around the corner and said boo and you were fearful. Fear is reverence. Fear is awe. Fear is honor and it is respect. And I I didn't realize until I was looking up this word, particular word that was used, that this word actually means it's the same word that as a used of a wife's reverence for her husband. Continue to work out your salvation with honor and respect like a wife does for a husband. Now, when you put that into the big story that the church is the bride of Christ and he is the bridegroom, that word makes sense. The word to continue to live out our life as one who has been saved with the honor and respect of the husband, of of Christ, the one who saved us. Honor, respect, in awe. Live out your salvation with respect for Him. Fashion your life with respect to Him. 
with reverence for him, honoring him with the life that we have. Our actions, our words, our very thoughts are to bring glory to him. The glory that he set aside in order to lift us up, we can set aside all of the sin, all of the stuff of this world in order that we might lift him up and glorify him. It's really a neat picture if you step back and look at it. At at how this life is to work. Glory that he willfully sets aside for us. We have the ability in the way we live our life to give back to him that glory, that majesty, that honor, that respect that authority, that power, just in the way we live. It says we're also to to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if fear is honor and respect, we have to understand that this trembling describes the anxiety of someone who distrusts their own ability completely to meet all the requirements. It's like someone has a job to do, okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be put up, up front and I'm going to have to do something that I know I do not have the ability to do. I do not meet the requirements. I have nothing within me that is going to enable me to meet the requirements of this job that is before me. And, and quite frankly, I'm a little trembly. Okay? It's like the little guy going up to bat for the first time and he knows there's absolutely no power within him And he goes up trembling, knowing that the job that is before him is more than he has within him. Does that not describe life? To live a life that is worthy of Jesus, to live a life that returns the glory and the majesty and power, to take what I have right here and live it in such a way that Jesus is glorified, I don't have that within me. I don't have that ability. I don't have what is required. And so with with respect and honor, I am going to plug ahead. I I know that I can't, but I'm going to do my utmost to fulfill this duty. And you know the beauty in it all is the very next line. For it's God who works in you. Hallelujah, it's not up to me. Because if it were, I'm going to fail miserably. But if I will give Him my life, if I will set all of that aside, everything that is me, if I set all that aside in order to lift him up, he is going to come in and God is going to do the work. And my life will bring him glory. My life will bring him honor and respect and majesty. But there's fear and trembling because I know there's nothing within me that can do it. For it is God who works in you. You and I can't meet the requirements of God. Stop trying. You're not going to do it. But Jesus can. And Jesus set all of his glory aside and, and took on the very likeness of a man so that he could come and that we could give him our life and then he could glorify himself through us. Because he knows we don't have it within us. That we're to live our life in the ever present knowledge that you can't do it but with the tenacity to allow God to do it through you. I pick that word carefully. Tenacity. With the unction. With the power of the Holy Spirit. With a tenacious zeal that, you know what, I can't do this. But by the power of God, I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it. 
that I'm going to trust God to, to, to live his life, that, that God is going to do it through me, for it is God that works in me. I can't do it. And so I'm going to live a tenacious life for him. I'm going to give him everything he needs, setting aside everything he can't use. Practically, Paul says this is what it looks like. No more complaining. No more, he says it. I didn't say it. I'm just taking his words right here. Do everything without complaining. Everything without complaining. You know what that word complaining means? Murmuring. Murmur. It means secret meetings. Secret debates. It means getting a few others around you and talking off in the corner and complaining about what just happened. What do we have to complain about? Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but set it all aside and took on the very form of a nature, uh, the very nature of a servant and appeared in the likeness of man. What do we have to complain about? Paul says, put an end to it. Just live life for God. Let God live through you. No more murmurings. No more complaining. No more secret meetings out back in the parking lot or at work or wherever. You've got nothing to complain about. No more arguing. Questioning what is right, what is true. Because what do we usually complain about? Something I didn't like. Didn't go my way. Didn't happen the way I wanted. I argue about it because I didn't think it was true. Because I don't like that idea. I want this. I, 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 I. Set it all aside that we might lift him up. Because God's going to work through you. We only complain about things that, that I want. I need. I think I need. Paul says no more complaining, no more arguing, that when we learn to accept others, when we love in spite of differences, then when we aren't talking behind people's back, when we accept what is right and true, when, when like in the days of, of the Acts in the first church, when it said all the believers were one in heart and mind, you know what happens? Paul says right here, so that you may become blameless and pure. How many of you can become blameless on your own? How many of you can maintain a level of purity on your own? He says, if we, if, if we will allow God to work in us, if we will continue to fashion our life as one who is saved, with, with honor and respect and the understanding that we can't do it, but by God, I'm going to do it, and we allow God to do it through us, then, then, then there's no need to complain, there's no need to argue, and we will be seen as blameless and faultless. Free from fault, unmixed. That we are not divided in heart, that we are not divided between the world and God. That our minds many times still think like the world. We've not set all of that aside. And so we operate many times the way the world does. That even as a church, sometimes we operate as the world does. In our workplaces, we operate the way the world does. 
kids in school. We operate the way the world does. But, but Jesus says we need to set all that aside. That many times we act the way the world acts. Romans chapter 12, 2. I think I've probably used this verse in every sermon I've ever preached. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know that that word, do not be conformed, and that idea of being transformed is metamorpho? It's the exact same word. It's the same word that Jesus did not consider equality with God or the very, found in the very nature of God, the morph of God, the form of God, that he set all of that aside and took on the form of a servant. He says, don't let your form anymore be formed by the pattern of the world. But be transformed, be reformed by God. If we will do that, we will be seen as blameless and pure, not mixed. That we won't look like the world, that we won't act like the world. Don't allow the world to change you. Allow Jesus to change you. When you, when you look at the lives of the faithful in the Bible... When you look at the lives of the heroes of the faith throughout history, a few words come to my mind. One is different. They just live different lives. You read the life of a, of a, of a Moody. Read the life of, of Billy Graham. Read, read the life of any of the, the characters in, in Hebrews chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and, and, and see that their life was different. They just lived different. They lived radical lives. They were seen as different. They lived supernatural lives. Francis Chan in his book Crazy Love says something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. Boy, is that ever true. That when my life, when the way I act, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I interact with other people makes perfect sense to a person who doesn't know God, there's probably a problem there. I should look different. In fact, I should probably look a little weird. All right? Because I'm following God. I'm not following me. I'm not following the ways of this world. I'm following the ways of Jesus, the ways of God. That, that many times I'm putting things backwards. The first will be last. The last will be first. I'm thinking differently. I'm interacting with people differently. The Christmas story is a story of radically changed lives. Radical obedience, both for Jesus, who set it all aside and came in the, in the likeness of man, but also in the main characters. It didn't make sense to Mary what was going to happen. This whole Christmas thing didn't make sense to her. But she went from, how can this be, to, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. How is this possible? I don't have any ability within me. There's nothing. I'm still a virgin. I've never known a man. How can I possibly be, become pregnant? I, I, I can't do that. But you said it. So God, tenaciously, I'm going to live my life. Because you said it would happen. Look at Joseph. Joseph went from he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Because once he found out they were actually engaged... And when he found out that she was pregnant, he had every right to divorce her, to break off the engagement. And that's what he planned on doing. And then an angel of God showed up and explained to him everything that was going to happen. And he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home 
as his wife. That's a radical change. That's a radical difference. Jesus was willing to set all of this aside so that he could lift you up. What are you willing to set aside to lift him up? Christmas is calling us to a radical lifestyle change, to think different. And this is going to require each of us to set some things aside, to get rid of some things, to, to not seize them, grasp them. And that may mean radical lifestyle changes for some of us. Again, the words of Francis Chan, most of us are so busy that the thought of adding one more thing to our weekly schedule is stressful. Instead of adding in another thing to our lives, perhaps God wants us to give him all of our time and let him direct it as he sees fit. That's a radical concept. Because, you see, we want to pull out our calendars and control our time. Nothing wrong with keeping a calendar, don't get me wrong. It's just good organization. But can God ever get in and interrupt that calendar? You know, sometimes it's hard for my wife and kids to interrupt my calendar. Can God ever get in? Or do I want to hold on? Do I want to seize? Do I want to grasp control of my time? Do I want to grasp control of my life? Do I want to grasp control of where I go and who I meet and when I meet with them? Or is that control something I need to set aside and allow God to direct my path? Allow God to direct people into my life. Allow God to, to show me where I need to be and who I need to be talking to and who I need to be building a relationship with. Does, does God need to have that? Radical living. No more selfish ambitions. No more only what is best for me. I've got to set self aside. There's no room for self. That if God is going to do it through me, if God is going to work in me, then I've got to set me on the back, way in the back. James chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Wow, how that all goes together. That if I will humble myself, if I will take myself and set myself aside, if I won't grasp on to the, to the control of my own life, Jesus will lift me up, which is exactly what we've said he's going to do. That he set it all aside in order to lift us up, to take on our own appearance as a man, as a human, as a servant. And that if we will humble ourselves and step back and allow him to, he will lift us up. No more pride. Set it aside. No more caring what other people think. I don't want to come off too spiritual. Why? I don't want people to think I'm a nut. Why? You're weird. <coughs> Just believing in God has a certain amount of weirdness to it. Just my, my willingness to work hard every day and then give part of what I make away to someone that I don't know or to get involved in helping people that I don't know that I may never meet again has a certain amount of weirdness to it. That my willingness to go out and while I'm buying presents for my wife and kids to buy gifts and also bring them for, for people at Safe Harbor who I will probably never meet has a certain amount of weirdness to it. That people say, why would you do that? Well, it's God who works in me. 
And I can't do it on my own, but I know with the tenacity, I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. I'm going to say no to the things of this world. I'm going to say no to the pleasures, to the desires. I'm going to say no to self. And I'm going to live with a tenacious spirit for God. And I'm going to allow him to let me do things that might seem weird to some people. So be it. He will lift me up. I don't want the praise of men. I would rather have the praise of God. That God would look down upon my life and be pleased. And say, I know exactly why you did that. Thank you for allowing me to live through you. It's a life of obedience. Jesus set all of this aside so that he could lift you up. My question this morning is, what are you willing to set aside to lift him up? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, more than story, this truth. These events that took place, that we read about, that we enact, that we can remember so well, but all of the things that Jesus did for us. Father, behind the scenes, the preparation that went. Father, allow us to not be able to walk out of here and and forget what Jesus has done. Father, allow us to take it in, to digest this truth. Father, right now, for every person in this room, show us the things we need to set aside. Show us that attitude that that gets in the way. Show us that, that, that action that gets in the way. Those thoughts that we have, the prejudices that we may have, reveal them to us. That get in the way of us being able to lift you up, to, to give you the glory and the honor and the respect that is due you. Father, would you live your life through us? Help us to live like one who is forgiven. Father, that we might be seen as blameless and faultless and pure. That we would lift Jesus up. And that by lifting him up, he would call all men unto himself. Thank you for this incredible opportunity and responsibility to be the child of the king. In Jesus' name, amen.